Hello and welcome to a special episode of the Fabulous Pelton Cast. I'm your co-host, Kevin Pelton. And I'm Tristan Carcino. And per tradition, with the NFL draft in the books, we are joined by Ben Baldwin of rbsdm.com to help us break down what the Seahawks did this weekend in an eventful NFL draft. Uh, ben, how's it going? Uh, it's going good. Thanks for having me back. And uh, it's an interesting draft to talk about. It's a little different vibe than last year where I believe, I don't know if we had you on the full recap. We had you on Friday night immediately after the Ken Walker, the third pick <laughs> and some emotions, some emotions were had. And despite the Seahawks again, taking a running back in the second round of the NFL draft for a second consecutive year uh, that couldn't totally overcome our excitement about them taking Jackson Smith and Jigba the night before. Yeah. I, I think it's funny how different the, the vibe might be between the first night, which it was great. They got two players that everyone should be really excited about. And then kind of the rest of the draft, which isn't even necessarily bad. It's just relative to the high of that. There's like, oh, they took another running back. And these players due to being taken later in the draft just aren't as exciting. So um, if, if we want to be optimistic and cheerful about the Seahawks, I think it's that first, <laughs> that first night that we have to really um, be thinking about. It's interesting because the Seahawks, by traditional draft grades, are scoring very high marks across the league. I think one of two A's from my ESPN colleague, Mel Kuyper. One thing I think you see is those tend to reflect much more, I think, like kind of the total haul of talent yes. that teams yes. get. I'm, I, I know this has been studied in the NFL analytics community. And obviously, like you go into the draft with the fifth and 20th pick and two picks in the second round you better come out with a lot of talent. So I think you're probably grading it from a more of a process standpoint. And after day two, before the Seahawks multiple picks on day three, you gave them a B minus overall. Did that change at all based on day three? I think, I think like, yeah, some, somewhere in the B range, you could argue about the plus or minus or just a B. And I, I think I would probably end up um, somewhere around there where I, I think the first day was pretty good. The second day was pretty bad. And then once it gets to day three, um, the, those picks are relatively less valuable. So unless, unless they're doing something really off the wall, then that probably shouldn't move you around too much. I think. Uh, I, I guess we haven't heard your thoughts on the day one picks. Um, obviously surprised with the fifth pick and Devin Witherspoon. What was your perspective on that Witherspoon pick? Yeah, I, I think it's a totally reasonable pick. The only Question I had. So my my draft grades that I tweeted out while I was waiting for my kids to finish the swimming lesson, which was like how much thought was being put into it. <laughs> well, we're really going behind the tweet here. <laughs> yeah. Um, it like why wasn't the grade higher? What could they have done better? I, I think when you're picking so high and you're not picking a quarterback, then you should do everything you can to try to trade down at least a few spots because you're really in that loser's curse section of the draft where the higher picks are less valuable because you're paying them so much more money than the performance decline would be if you move back a few spots in the draft. Now, we can't grade them too harshly because we don't know what offers we had. It sounds like they were talking to other teams and trying to trade back. We do know the, know the Bears actually did trade back, but that was only one spot with the Eagles. So if the well, Seahawks... And then the Lions <laughs> traded back to 12, oh, yeah. obviously. So, Further, yeah, yeah. so that's a good point. Maybe the B-plus was, was a little too generous. They... Like if they had that the offer on the table that the Lions did, then like the Lions picked up and it was an early second round pick for moving yeah. back. Number thirty four. Yeah. We won't talk about how the Lions used <laughs> that first <laughs> that they got, but um it like if you look at any draft curve that has ever been estimated, like you would much, much, much rather have the twelfth and thirty fourth pick than the fifth pick or the sixth pick. Now, with all that said, I, I think Witherspoon's a, gr a great prospect. I'm very excited to watch him play. I, I think having him and Woolen, all the stuff that you guys talked about, like all that stuff is great and exciting. And the, the one question I, ha I, I have is whether they could have moved back a little bit to try to pick up more draft capital, especially if they're going to use one of their second round picks on a running back, which we <laughs> didn't know it at the time. And, and I think taking the individual player out of it and maybe even um, the prospect of trading like, what is your perspective on drafting a cornerback with the fifth pick? 
Yeah, this is something that I've kind of come around on where maybe a couple years ago, I would have said, like, it's it's really hard to predict cornerback play. We probably shouldn't be taking them at the top of the draft. And then I think more highly drafted cornerbacks have done well. Obviously, there's um, Sauce Gardner from last year who was a top five pick and, and did really well. And when people have looked at the, the probability that positions are drafted high, that they get an extension or have high wins above replacement as measured by the um, PFF stuff. And then cornerbacks in some measures do as well as, or close to as well as, as the other top positions. So they're, they're not one of those positions where you say, Oh, don't draft this position on day one. So in that sense that the Seahawks got a cornerback and a wide receiver, which is um, pass the ball and stop the pass. So from, from that standpoint, the positional value, I, I, Assuming that they were out on Jalen Carter, which I'm totally on board with, then I, I think drafting a cornerback there is totally fine. Okay. Yeah, it was interesting. I mean, looking back, I think Jalen Ramsey was the fifth pick in the draft a handful of years ago. And then Sauce, Patrick Sartan, who was drafted in the top 10 by the Broncos. There have obviously been some busts in the top 10 with cornerbacks as well, but it does feel like the hit rate more recently has been quite a bit higher. Now, that doesn't necessarily mean anything about Devin Witherspoon. It's mostly just about that long-term value and whether you would be looking at a second contract or if he plays well enough, is he going to give you excess value on top of that rookie deal? And then the other aspect of it is we do know that at the top of the cornerback market, if you land a star there, that is a hugely valuable position. It's not safety. (laughs) Yeah, safety is both very, very, very hard to project from college to pro. And even if you get a good safety, the yeah, the surplus value is not like it is for cornerbacks. The Jackson Smith and Jigba trade, you graded an A. I, I feel like I'm Pick. still not trade. Yeah, sorry. I, I feel like we're still looking for the person who is not super high on this pick for the Seahawks. Yeah, there's really like okay, maybe they could have traded down, but the this is different because I think that you could reasonably say that like this, this is the top wide receiver prospect. And if you traded down and got one of the later receivers, then you would probably feel a little bit less good about that. And you're also not in the, the portion of the draft where the rookie contracts are just insanely expensive. Like they are with the, with the number five pick. So given all that, I don't mentally ding them as much in my head for not training down from the 20th pick as I, as I do from the, All right, so that was where we left off on Thursday night. Let's get into the rest of the draft. Uh, With the 37th overall pick in the second round, they took Derek Hall in edge from Auburn, who uh, was number 52 on Arif Hassan's consensus big board, number nine among edges. The edges kind of went a little earlier than expected, I would say, comparing to the consensus big board, but notably two players uh, rated higher than them were, uh, at that position were still out there. BJ Ujulari, who was 41st, and then Keon White, who was 45th. And, you know, Danny Kelly was even higher on White than that. So uh, you gave this pick a C. Uh, what, what went into that thinking? Yeah, so it, it's a premium position, so that's good. Um, but the rest... Like you said, if if there is a player that you are about to reach on, then, and again, we're not seeing behind the scenes here, but you've got to explore trading down because a player of that caliber or, or somebody of a similar caliber is probably going to be available. And we saw right after that pick, there were a bunch of trade downs. So it's, it's not like there weren't teams that were um, wanting to move up in this range. So I think they could have traded down and either landed the same player or one of these other edges that were even higher on the consensus big board without um necessarily um coming away with the worst player and the Seahawks themselves said they they were trying to get picks in next year's draft and this might have been a good opportunity to try to do that would be trade down and move down I don't know five or ten spots and see if somebody would send you a third round pick in next year's draft or something like that I I think I would have liked that better but um that that's how I landed on a C which is a passing grade nothing catastrophically bad but I I think they could have done a little bit better. That's without mentioning all the senior bowl pass rush stuff. So, <laughs> <Yes>. so when, <laughs> when, when you're talking about grading picks, <laughs> you're basically judging positional value, maybe some element of team need or whatever, plus consensus big board, right? Yeah, I, I think those are the three, even setting aside team need as much to some extent. So I don't, I don't think they should draft a tackle or whatever. Imagine drafting a tackle. So um, to the extent that team need plays into it like that, um, maybe a little bit, but 
beyond that, like everybody that has studied the draft has found that like, it's very hard to differentiate players, especially ones picked within some range of each other. And when teams reach on players, then like, it, it's called reaching for a reason. You have this consensus of every people who are spending hundreds of hours watching the draft and coming up with this ranking of players. And if, if you are the team that thinks you are smarter than everybody and has the, the better ranking than everybody else has agreed upon, we've seen the Seahawks reach on all these players. And for the most part, it, it hasn't turned out well. This isn't a huge reach compared to what they've done in the past with like LJ Collier, and Ethan Posick, and all these other names that we're ready to forget. Um, and here we're talking about like a, a 15 pick reach rather than a two round reach. So it, it's not catastrophic, but it's not... Um, like it, if you're drafting a player in a position where there are other prospects that other that a consensus has rated higher than him, and you and you aren't able to trade down in a in a range where a lot of other teams were able to trade down, then I think it's um, you probably could have done a little bit better. Who were the couple of players who were picked right before him? Because I know the Seahawks mentioned that they'd kind of been scooped on picks a few times, and I wonder if. This was a situation where they had somebody that they wanted to take and so it didn't have a trade ready. And then all of a sudden they that player got selected and then they ended up just making the pick. I understand it's a very, very fast time that this happens. So it feels like that was much more at the 52nd pick than it was at this one. I mean, there wasn't the edges went at the end of the first round. We saw Miles Murphy at 28 and then Felix Iniduke Uzama to Kansas City with the final pick of the first round and then Nolan Smith. Uh, in between them. So there was a bunch right at the end of the first round, but once you got into day two, nobody went that was unexpected. I mean, maybe Steve Avila as an interior lineman uh, could have been someone who was in their consideration, but it, it feels like Hall was probably pretty close to the top of their board coming into the day. Okay. I would guess if that was about any of their second round picks, it would, it would have been the, their pick at 52 where there was a, a nose tackle that went to the Steelers three picks before yeah, then Ke- Keanu other... Benton went 49 yes yeah. yes and then the the one that went to the Patriots right before that too so maybe maybe that's what they're talking about but it's hard to know that one of the edges that was higher on the consensus big board BJ Ojolari went to the Cardinals four picks later so it'll it'll be interesting to compare how those how the careers of those two players um, end up going well yeah you look at the ESPN analytics sack projections you've got Ojolari was projected for an average of 10.5 sacks in his first seasons, three seasons, 10.3 for Keon White, who some sources, some groups list him as more of a kind of four, three, three, four end rather than an edge rusher. But, you know, his, his projection is for 10.3 sacks over his first three years in, uh, in Derek Hall's case, it was 7.2 sacks in his first three years. So a little bit less than that. Uh, I, I will note, he was the second of the Seahawks' first three picks that one of Danny Kelly's attributes for him was got that dog in him. So there we go. that may have been something they were looking for, <laughs> especially after the success of Ken Walker third last season. I, I have a little bit harder time with this pick. I, I mean, I guess, you know, we judge things so much based upon the position instead of the player. And I do think that at least they drafted somebody at the right position. I mean, say what you will about Boye Mafe. Like, there wasn't a huge amount of production from Boye Mafe last year. But I do think they're anticipating more this year. It's still kind of a let's wait to be seen with Boye Mafe. But if things work, the excess value could be huge from this pick. And I, I, I don't know if I'm willing to give that much credit to the consensus big board on an individual player like this. When we're talking an entire draft, possibly, but like you can't cherry pick every single individual player and say that individual player will be better than any other individual player. I think well, the position randomness, more. randomness is the dominant factor, but is, is Ben pointed out again, statistically, if you draft players higher than where they are supposed to go, that generally is not a winning bet. Now the reverse of it is not true because when players exactly. slide, often it tends to be because there's something we don't know about, you know, in their medical history or things like that. So, you know, steals are not as true, which is interesting. Like you look at the Eagles draft where I think they were widely praised in part because of the fact that they got so many guys who went lower than they were, they were expected to go. It'll be interesting to see how that one plays out. So at 52, the Seahawks <sighs> relapsed again and took a running back, Zach Charbonnet, 
from UCLA, who uh, played his first two years at Michigan, where he split time with Hassan Haskins before transferring to UCLA ahead of the 2021 season, where he ran for over 2,500 yards in two years with the Bruins, averaging seven yards per carry as a senior. After he wasn't a big factor in the passing game at Michigan, he caught 61 passes in two years at UCLA. So that's uh, some positional versatility there. Uh, and yet it's a running back in the second round. And obviously you graded this one. Enough, ben. <laughs> yeah. I, I think the, the positional value horse has been pretty beaten to death. So what I, what I was trying to think about was why this felt so much less frustrating slash disappointing than the Kenneth Walker pick last year. And it's, it's not really about the players. Like I don't think that one is necessarily better than the other, but I think the, Last so last year at this time we we were expecting the CX to be very bad. Their win total is like five and a half or six wins. This was before Chris Carson had retired and Rashad Penny was still on the roster. So we we thought running if there was any position of strength on the Seahawks roster, it was running back, and they're not going to be a good team. So it was like complete waste of a pick. And I, I think that's at least for me that's why I was so disappointed in the pick. A lot of those things aren't true anymore. So the Seahawks. The, the Rams and Cardinals pretty much fell apart. So there's it's pretty much the Seahawks and the 49ers that are in this for the division. And it wouldn't be that surprising if they made the playoffs and got within a few games of the 49ers. Um, but that doesn't mean that it's a good idea to pick a running back. It's, it, it's just a little bit less jarring than it was last year. Also because the surprise factor is gone when they already just did this last year. <laughs> At least it's in day two. <laughs> Right, like it wasn't at the yeah, beginning of yeah. the draft in day two. It was something. <laughs> Walker was forty-one, right? Yeah, yeah. There was the the picks forty and forty-one where they had the two picks in a row, and they took a long time deciding. We were all wondering if they were going to draft a quarterback, and I, and that was the other thing is we thought that the Seahawks might be drafting Malik Willis or one of these quarterbacks, and now with the benefit of, benefit of hindsight, all those quarterbacks fell, and probably for good reason. So, um not taking one of them is not going to come back to bite them like we were worried that it would at the time. So did I just correctly hear Ben Baldwin say that <laughs> drafting a running back was not quite as bad? Yeah. I should give it an F plus rather than the F of last. <laughs> plus. <laughs> this is huge. This is huge. I I was shocked as you were saying. I thought you were starting out by saying that it stung more because it was two years in a row, but instead you you were the mildest bit complimenting the pick. Uh, this is this is also mildest bit not insulting. The pass catching ability. This is your uh, yearly reminder that throwing to running backs is bad, and also there's going to be so many open receivers on this team that we do not want the Seahawks throwing to running backs because of the receiving core as it is. So we're very excited about that. I, I will say, I told Kevin that I've always had a soft spot in my heart for Zach Charbonnet. So he's somebody playing in the Pac-12 is one one way for me to be like, I kind of like him being a skill position player in the Pac-12, even though they beat the Huskies last year. Uh, I think I this is not necessarily a compliment to Zach Charbonnet. But I think by the end of the 2023 season, he is going to be getting more carries per game than Ken Walker. For whatever reason that might be, whether it's injury or otherwise. In fact, I'll go ahead and I'll boldly predict Zach Charbonnet gains more yards, more rushing yards in the 2023 season than Ken Walker. That was fairly bold. I mean, I was pretty infuriated on Friday night. There was a real You were so much angrier than I was. (laughs) Clearly, I was angrier than Ben was, I guess. At the time. <laughs> made it plus, he loved the pick. <laughs> it's like, okay, the whole logic of, oh, we have to get this premium talent at the running back position and use a second round pick, a high second round pick on Ken Walker the third is well, at least we got the position solved as long yeah, as Ken yeah. Walker the third stays healthy. And then you had to take a second guy in the second <laughs> round again the next year. So now, you know, I hope that both of these guys are very, both of these players are very successful, which will have more to do with the Seahawks offensive line than it will their individual talents, given what we know about success and failure at the running back position. Uh, I, if they are successful, hopefully now we would, there won't be a running back in the first two or two days for a long period of time. I, I did have a couple of questions though. Number one, so we later saw the Philadelphia Eagles in their quest to get almost every player from the the University of Georgia, except their running back, who we'll get to later, uh, (laughs) trade 
a fourth round pick in 2025, I believe, for DeAndre Swift. Now, Swift only has one year left on his rookie deal. Exactly. So you'd be looking yes. at Payne There's and potentially next year. Would you rather have made that move than drafted a running back in the second round? Yeah, just because the second round pick is really valuable. I, I don't love what the Eagles did either. And But if the alternative is using the second round pick, then I, I would rather take that second round pick and use it on something useful. Okay. I mean, best case scenario, I look, look, best case scenario, they get a great year. If you're the Eagles, you get a great year from DeAndre Swift and then you just let him walk or whatever. Maybe and then you potentially get a comp pick. Exactly. I mean, get a comp pick or whatever. That could be a useful part of it. It could also end up being DeAndre Swift has an amazing year and then you're compelled to resign him, which running backs on their second contracts are nowhere near as enticing. That's the other thing I was thinking about, Zach Charbonnet. Like, the Seahawks being where they are, as Ben mentioned, they need to get value from... The the way that you get more value from a running back is by getting value from them on their rookie contract immediately. It's not, you don't wait a year or two. You don't let them develop. It's right away. And I think that Zach Charbonnet, despite the fact that Ken Walker is also here, is probably in a pretty good place to be getting carries pretty much immediately. It's not like he's waiting it out. It is, if you were going to next season, you're saying this is this is the backfield. It is these two rotating, right? It is Ken Walker in certain situations, Zach Charbonnet in different situations, maybe a little bit more of like third down type back, something like that, which the Seahawks have not had amazing productivity from that particular type of position, um, even with uh, Travis Homer or whatever. The disrespect to Travis Homer's DVOA the last <laughs> two seasons. Was it really good, his DVOA? Well, two years ago, he had the touchdown on the oh, yeah, on the end the around or whatever fake, the fake, fake play, fake punt, yeah, yeah, which counted um, as a run technically. So I I could see that being those positions kind of working in tandem. I get it. I I understand where they were coming from on this pick, and I think the rest of the draft where they drafted players again. This is what we'll get to about Ben's uh, Ben's grades changing. What they did both before and after. I think they nailed the first round so hard and like the reality is nailing the first round is a hell of a lot more important than nailing everywhere else because you're paying those players so much fucking more money so if you screw up one of those two picks you have a problem for years if you get value from one of the picks four through seven three through seven that's an amazing situation right you got lucky because something went right which the Seahawks have had with the you know treat woolen last year right so, but it is so much more important. If you could say you could have an amazing rounds two through seven, but you really fucked up round one, it's a tough conversation to have between those two things. It depends on the players or whatever. Obviously, they're very excited about Trey One. You're paying a lot more money to the first round picks. I think whatever happened with Bruce Irvin in 2012, the Seahawks were probably going to come out pretty well on that draft when you draft two Hall of Famers. Sure. Yes. If one. the Seahawks have drafted two Hall of Famers, if they draft a running back in the first round and you could draft a Hall of Fame quarterback, after that, you had a good draft. Exactly. You could draft 10 running backs in the did, first round. And if you draft a Hall of Fame quarterback in the third round, then you're good. Did not but you draft a single saying, Hall of Famer after Rashad Penny in 2017. Uh, if I had it up, I would say, we'll see about whatever, Lemuel Jean-Pierre or something. <laughs> but... Uh, you understand what I'm saying? Nailing that first round, I think, is a lot more important than anything else. And the fact that I think position-wise, they basically, when we look at the draft as a whole, let's go through those, but they kind of nailed it for the types of positions that the Seahawks should be drafting. This wasn't a draft littered with tight ends and safeties and things like that. They didn't draft a kicker in the third round. They did almost <laughs> everything generally pretty right, so it makes the second round pick of a, the sting is a little bit lower. You blew the joke. It was Michael Dixon. Oh, I didn't have it up. Uh, yeah. I, I, yeah, and I said the wrong year. It was 2018, not 2017. One of the things we've learned here, by the way, is remember this in four months. If you're in a fantasy league, Pelton Cast Fantasy League with Tristan this year. Oh, Zach Charbonnet. He will be taking <laughs> Zach Charbonnet. <laughs> and maybe around too high, much like the Seahawks. But... They redeemed themselves a bit, came back in the third round later on Friday and helped themselves out by making a trade down, their only trade of the draft, uh, going from the 
third, 83rd pick in the third round to the 108th pick of the fourth round and getting from the Denver Broncos, who have not learned their lesson about trading with the Seahawks <laughs> involving future draft picks, the lesser of the Broncos or Saints third round picks in 2024. If you go by the Jimmy Johnson chart, moving down from 83 to 108 should be worth about the 100th pick. So an early fourth rounder, which is how Denver surely justified this, given that usually for a high you know, pick in one round, you get a pick, a pick a round higher the next year. In reality, there's no reason for this to happen. The draft is no less valuable next year than it is this year, except for the possibility that you get fired. So this is obviously a great move. One, as I've talked about, you should execute every single year. And kudos to the Seahawks for doing it. Yeah, hopefully they can start a Ponzi scheme where they next year they flip this for some team's second round pick and then eventually get a high pick out of it. It's it's the one red paper clip <laughs> of the NFL draft. Yeah. <laughs> it's just incredible that it was the Broncos again, though. It for is. the third time it's- in history, it's going down. With the Broncos, the Alfonso Smith trade coming back again. Uh, we'll see. I didn't realize it was the lower of the Saints or the Broncos. Yeah, it gives them a bit more of an out because even if they're not good next season, New Orleans, you know, could be or something I, like that. So both those teams could be pretty bad. <laughs> it, it certainly when you're projecting it out, like, you know, the, the Seahawks sent again, the 83rd pick. So the 21st pick in the second round. The odds that this pick next year is higher than 83 are yeah. certainly better than 50-50 in my mind. Yep. You have to sort of credit the Seahawks also for not doing anything stupid. Aside from, again, they didn't draft a kicker in the third <laughs> round, and they didn't make a trade like this. No, I mean, they, they are good in that regard. Uh, with that 108th pick, their first on day three on Saturday, they took LSU guard Anthony Bradford, who was number 159 on the consensus big board, seventh among guards. Bradford emerged as a starter as a third-year sophomore. He played primarily at right guard at LSU per Dane Brugler's Beast draft guide on the athletic, but uh, also made five starts at left tackle. So this is their first kind of, we came into this draft expecting uh, them to fill needs on the interior offensive line and on the the interior defensive line, the the down line uh, with edge rushers counting separately in the Seahawks now 3-4 scheme. Finally, by day three, they they start to get to that. Yeah, this this was perfect. You don't want to spend your premium picks on interior offensive line for similar reasons to running backs. Um, so they traded down and then took what was a reasonably ranked player on the consensus board. So this is a, a plus process. Um, wow. And Definitely a position of need. It was a little interesting. They went guard over center at first. We'll get to the center they eventually took. And I I wonder how much that was kind of a factor in it, thinking that you know they liked someone who they could get later at center in terms of guard, which is not as probably as immediate of a need. Like there's less chance, I think, of Bradford playing this season, but down the road, potentially, I think, you know, a chance for him to emerge as a starter. That's always a we'll see when you when you're talking of about course. an offensive lineman chance of them playing this season. It's just a well a lot can happen. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Of course, in terms of injury, but uh, with the 123rd pick in the fourth round, they took Mississippi State nose tackle Cameron Young, who is number 2203 on the consensus big board, but fourth among one techniques or nose tackles. Uh, a little smaller than the typical prototype at that position at 304 pounds. Uh, and he told reporters that the Seahawks coaching staff had told him that he might also play at end in their 3-4 front. Young suffered an ACL tear in 2019, didn't emerge as a starter until 2021, starting all 25 games the last two seasons. Brugler had a fourth round grade on him and said he could provide immediate help as part of a defensive line rotation. Very similar to the last pick, but this is... You need to draft trench players, but if you're not drafting the kind of elite talent interior defensive line at the very, very top of the draft, then you probably want to wait till day three like they did. Um, so this was, again, no no issues with what they did here. And you would never want to draft a one tech that high anyway. Unless he was a really amazing pass rusher somehow. <laughs> yeah, I, I kind of got sold a little bit uh, reading Danny's Kelly Danny's draft guide on... Siaki Ika, right? Uh, because of the fact that he comped him to Vita Vea. Now, obviously, <laughs> he did not go nearly as high as Vita Vea, but I would have, I would have liked to to see him. I think he went late in the third round. Siaki Ika, yeah. Uh, with the 151st pick in the fifth round, after what 
Tristan described as an excruciating wait because he wasn't used to uh, the Seahawks having to go in full round between picks. I mean, after it's the, been a while. Uh, the Seahawks took Michigan defensive end Mike Morris, who was number, number 134 on the consensus big board. Morris played as an edge at Michigan and uh, emerged as a starter as a senior after the departure of Aiden Hutchinson and David Ojabo, both top two pit round picks in the NFL last year, had seven and a half sacks as a senior. At six foot five, two ninety five, projection is a down lineman for the Seahawks in that kind of three four end position. Uh, Brugler called him a rookie rotational end with starter upside, and to me, I think this is actually one of the more exciting day three picks for the Seahawks in terms of someone who you know has some pass rush production in an edge spot who now is going to be providing that from a down lineman spot. The the weight position positional aspect of this is interesting i i appreciate the seahawks for posting all the draft day calls they do with their players and uh for anyone that hasn't watched this one it, it's interesting because i think it was um john schneider that was like are, are you still eating are you still 295 and like everybody <laughs> that talked to him like wanted to make sure he was still this weight because they have they have this specific role for him that requires him to to be heavier than he was um, in college, so they're, they're, this is something that they're monitoring him and even talking to him about on on the night that he's getting drafted. Okay, well, I just <laughs> want to say on this pick, I think if there is anybody, you know, there is that Drake Woolen pick last year, right? And people have sort of saw it as like this is a player who, if there's anybody, we'll see. It's a long shot, obviously, but if there's anybody who's going to break out from this leader group of players from the day three picks, this is the player. I mean, Kobe Bryant. Also, I, I think we were pretty hyped about both the Bryant and Woolen picks in terms of like kind of opposite ends of the, you know, polished versus physical tool spectrum at cornerback. Getting both of those guys was very exciting. But would you agree that that from this year's crop of D3 players that this is the one that stands out the most? I mean, there wasn't really like the relative athletic scar- score superstar that they drafted in the second round of this in the on day three this year. Yeah. So I don't know if I would necessarily um, say that. Bradford, the guard, is mildly intriguing. And some of that is just because they've had interior offensive line issues for so long that if he does pan out, it would be nice for them. But we'll, we'll see. So the Seahawks gave, saved on their scouting budget in the fifth round. Three picks later, they draft another Michigan man, Olu Oluwatimi who was number 122 on the consensus big board, fifth among centers. He was a three-year starter at Virginia who moved to Michigan for his COVID year and started there. A bit undersized at 6'2", 309, doesn't have positional versatility, which is why he was still out there in the fifth round. And intriguingly, the Seahawks did take him over rival Ohio State center Luke Whipler, who was 70th on the consensus big board, but did not get taken until the sixth round. Uh, Brugler described him as a cerebral assignment sound player. Sound player. Evan Brown was pretty good when he played center for the Lions a couple of years ago. So I, I would be pretty surprised unless Brown got hurt if we saw him on the field um, this year. But Evan Brown is only under contract for one year. So after that, we will see. Yeah, I mean, I think this goes right along with what you have already said about, you know, the fourth round picks in terms of, you know, not a not a high positional value position, uh, someplace where you could potentially get uh, a quality player in the fifth round, especially if he can kind of overcome the the physical limitations with his sheer kind of you know skill at the position and and uh, and positional IQ. Well, they kind of just needed bodies on the line. Also, yep. they needed to fill out the roster with you know drafted bodies and you know see how things play out in training camp basically but these are all going to be players who are going to be competing for positions along the way some of them obviously will be cut but like this this was a place you just can never have enough linemen offensive or defensively you cannot have enough this is one of tristan's core philosophies uh he was excited about the sat surely excited about the saturation nature of their drafting in on day three in the sixth round the seahawks took jarek reed the second a safety out of new mexico uh, with the 119th pick, he was not did not appear on the consensus big board, was 30th in Brugler's safety ratings of the priority free agent grade. This, I guess, would actually be probably more of the just kind of take a pure athlete and see what happens. Ran a 44440. Uh also, you know, seemed to, you know, play kind of some more nickelish role at times in New Mexico's defense. So that's that's somewhere we could see him, you know, interchange between those two spots like we've seen with Ugo Amadi in the past. Yep. 
<laughs> very deep secondary right now, though. Co the competition in the secondary is going to be very, very high for the Seahawks team. So any anybody who makes the roster in the secondary is going to be a very good player. And with their final pick, the Seahawks closed it out at number 237 by taking Georgia running back Kenny McIntosh, who improbably was not drafted by the Eagles. He was <laughs> number 152 on the consensus big board. Uh, McIntosh started as a senior, was one of two FBS running backs with at least 40 catches and 500 receiving yards per Brugler. Not an especially productive ru runner, so you know, I think the best case scenario is probably Travis Homer's replacement as a third down back. I have the ESPN summary of the draft, and <laughs> it says here, the executive director of the Senior Bowl, Jim Nagy, called McIntosh <laughs> the best value pick of the draft. So there you go. There we go. <laughs> like use all the seventh round picks on Senior Bowl stand up. By all means. The one thing I was going to ask earlier about at running back was someone I had looked at for the Seahawks. I don't know if you had felt the same way as Rashawn Johnson from Texas, who was Bijan Robinson's backup. Oh, yeah. And I think went in the fourth round, and Danny Kelly had comped him to Chris Carson. He was someone I was really hoping for them to get. Yeah, if they had used a fourth round pick instead of a second round pick. All right, so coming out of this, where do we feel like the Seahawks are? How much help do they still need? You know, probably defensive line in particular, maybe another veteran linebacker, depending on how you feel about Jordan Brooks. Pete Carroll expressed a lot of optimism about <laughs> Jordan Brooks, but we have to run that through the Pete Carroll filter, and that actually means <laughs> maybe he'll play at some point this season. Uh -huh. uh, yeah, but that wasn't a position that they addressed at all in the draft, which I think is probably a little linebacker. bit surprising. Yeah, it's kind of wild. Yeah, I think their offense is in very good shape as long as they stay healthy and Geno Smith plays like he did the first couple months of the season. Like they could have a very, very good offense, and I think that that is pretty exciting. That was that was what most jumped out to me after the first day when I was like, I, I think I'm ready to believe in the Seahawks team. And then, oh, uh, wow, and then the that's heart is open. Yeah. And then the second day happened. <laughs> um, but even still, like they, they're on the offensive side, which is like the most stable and the most predictable year to year, there's okay, there's somewhat of a question mark at quarterback. But other than that, like how long has it been since we went into the season and had no worries about the tackle position? And there were three wide receivers that we're really excited about. And there, there are plenty of tight ends. Um, they added at the Another position they did not draft, which I think people kind of expected. Stanford's finest, Colby Parkinson, is going <laughs> to hold down the hold down the tight end spot. So, yeah, so I think the questions are on defense, and it's kind of what everyone thought before the draft. It's kind of true after the draft is the interior of the defensive line, and then possibly at linebacker position. But it, it, it's exciting what they added at cornerback and. Maybe Jamal Adams will help the secondary too. And and maybe they'll have an average defense, which if you have an average defense and a very good offense, which I think is not totally crazy to think about, then that's a pretty good team. And obviously the Bobby Wagner addition is still a pretty huge one as well. Adding a Pro Bowl caliber player in the middle of the defense, plus Jamal Adams, plus Devin Witherspoon uh, and Trey Jones. Like I, I mean, I agree that average should be the goal as far as the defense goes, because when you look at the season on a whole, they had some very good games, but they weren't they weren't an average defense last year. Maybe statistically they ended up getting there or something like that. But no, I mean I think the reason it's the goal is because they haven't been an average defense in <laughs> yeah. a number of years. But I do think offensively, aside from possibly regression, you know, for Geno Smith, otherwise the offense looks pretty dangerous at this point and I think you have to be looking at it as this is probably a top 10 offense going to the season this could be probably an average defense which to me is a comfortable playoff team and when you're looking at let's say the NFC where do you feel like the Seahawks are at right now coming out of this draft yeah the NFC part is a good point because the conference is just so weak right now where okay let's sit down and think about the teams that are confidently better than the Seahawks. There's obviously Cowboys, Eagles, 49ers. And then after that, there's... Are the Cowboys confidently better than the Seahawks? Oh, yeah. They, they're, they're, they've they're they had, like, great point differential in everything for two seasons in a row. So okay. I, I think they, they probably are. They, they played a very close playoff game with the 49ers, and the, the Seahawks did not do that. 
those are the teams that have higher uh, over-under totals at Caesar Sportsbook by William Hill. In addition to the Saints at nine and a half, which I assume is largely a product of the NFC South and the fact that someone has yeah. to win the <laughs> NFC South, although they do not necessarily have to do that with an above 500 record. I, I am a little surprised the Seahawks are only at 500. Part of that is a function of one of the things that people kind of don't mentally adjust for until they actually think about it is last year, the NFC had the extra home game. And yeah. and the Seahawks in particular, because they lost a road game at Tampa Bay uh, yep. for the London or the the Germany the game seven road games and yeah. nine home games yeah this year they will play eight home games and nine road games so that's one factor in it and why those over under totals are slightly lower than the FC in addition to the fact that the FC is just better uh, but it it still feels more to me like closer to a nine and a half over under total than an eight and a half if you feel like you have to have it at a uh, a half win. So there are four teams with higher over/under totals in the NFC yes. than the Seahawks. Okay. One of them's the Saints, yeah. And one of and one of them has Derek Carr as their quarterback. Yeah. I guess maybe if, we shouldn't have been so excited about that 2024 third round pick. If I think we should, I get it. Somebody has to win the NFC South, but like I, I don't know if I see it with the Saints. Uh, with the roster even outside of Derek Carr, like is he that much of an upgrade at quarterback versus? I guess Jameis was hurt for a lot of the season, but like Andy, Andy Dalton and Derek Carr, I don't know how are they really that different. I guess we'll find out. <laughs> there's there's some sort of like Derek Carr with red hair. <laughs> I mean, I don't know who's gonna make the playoffs from the NFC South, but I wouldn't. Maybe maybe the best guess is the Saints, and and. I personally think there are, there are obviously questions about the 49ers roster. I mean, they're still going into the season with still pretty unproven quarterback play. So, but I, I Detroit, I didn't mention Detroit also has a higher over under than the Seahawks. That also feels like a byproduct of the division. I mean, again, I who knows? People are probably saying the same thing about Geno Smith, right? They're saying that Geno Smith has been a quarterback for one year. There's not a lot of proven quarterback play in the NFC outside of Jalen Hurts and Dak Prescott. So, I think it is a pretty wide open conference. And that being the case, I'd like to have as much talent as possible uh, on both sides of the ball. Obviously the Seahawks upgrading in our opinion, in a pretty major way at wide receiver and the offense in general. So having open receivers for Geno Smith to pass the ball to, I think is the best possible thing for making sure that what Geno did last year continues for this year and maintains for the entire season. And at the same time, as we talked about having, you know, passing the ball and stopping the pass, is the goal in the NFL and adding Devin Witherspoon and what could be, if you told me that this was the best secondary in the NFL next year, I would not be shocked by that. I'd be pretty shocked, but I'm not <laughs> high on their safeties. And that's partially why you're not high on their safeties. <laughs> I, I, I am still skeptical of the Jamal Adam experience. <laughs> it's also at the very least like a, a pretty deep secondary, right? Like there's, you know, adding Jordan love to the mix with Quandary Diggs and Jamal Adams. Plus Devin Witherspoon, you know, with Mike Jackson, who started the entire season, right? Like the types of corners that they have in the mix with Devin Witherspoon in there is like people are going to have to find places to play and they're going to have to earn those spots. And it's not going to be an easy thing to do in the secondary. So I'm excited about the secondary personally. And I also strongly believe in what a good secondary can do for a pass rush. I want to know for the record to just since everyone listening already caught this, it's Julian Love that Seahawks did not add the Packers starting quarterback to their second. I Jordan Love. <laughs> you did. Julian I've said Love. that to myself in my head so many times. <laughs> I I think one thing that's going to be interesting, like you think back to last year's preseason and how bad the Seahawks were in the preseason, despite the fact that they were playing Geno Smith the entire preseason. <laughs> I mean, obviously the wide receiver play in particular was was pretty poor, and uh, you would expect that not to be the case this year with Jackson Smith and Jigba likely to get a lot of those snaps. But like, they just haven't necessarily had that competitive training camps in a few years here because of the atrophying from the draft and culminating in you know the the 2021 draft class where they had like three picks. Yeah. Oh, yes, Bridge. Yeah. <laughs> Yeah, and now you layer, you know, getting a replacement first round pick, an extra second round pick last year, having the two extra picks this year. 
suddenly this team, I think hopefully should be much deeper than it has been in, in past years. And that's exciting. I mean, one of the things that interests me about the draft from kind of the big picture standpoint is one of the things we did think was possible was because of the fact that the Seahawks view themselves as contenders and perhaps reasonably so in the NFC that they would like really prioritize all right we've got to get an interior defensive lineman at the top of the draft because that guy's going to help us more this season than Devin Witherspoon is going to or certainly than a quarterback would have and they resisted that temptation I think and thought kind of long term it is also interesting like from a cap standpoint though Drafting Devin Witherspoon and Jackson Smith and Jigba didn't get you out of pain anybody else long-term. And so assuming Geno Smith has another strong season, especially if he manages to surpass last season and earn the incentives in his option and his, uh, I forget what technically the bonus is, but the roster bonus that's due next year, then it's going to be interesting to see how they handle that from a cap standpoint. And that's where it feels like something is probably going to have to happen at the safety position to deal with that. Eventually, yep, it will, that's for sure. That's where they have a lot of money uh, invested. I mean, next next February is or March is not really eventually at this point. That's it's, it's less than a year away before this season. But the Seahawks long term are not going to have the highest paid safety core in NFL history for that long. Well, the Seahawks are going to have to do something to clear up some money. They they again are functionally over the cap unless over the cap dot com is incorrect in estimating their cap space. So yep. we'll see how they handle that. Noah fan inst- extension incoming. <laughs> I have another draft question. If the Colts had not selected Anthony Richardson, do we think that the Seahawks would have? Having Anthony Richardson would have been very, very exciting. And who Anthony Richardson becomes, we obviously will be watching closely. Anthony Richardson in the short term obviously would not have helped the Seahawks that much. And that much? I mean, bringing him down is like bringing him in is like, uh, you know, when the was it the who was bringing in Jacoby Brissett? The Browns were bringing in Jacoby Brissett to sneak like that situation and deep balls, right? Okay, yeah, deep balls. Uh, but I Anthony Richardson would have created some problems also in the short term. Right, anytime that anything went even mildly awry with Geno the fan base, myself included, would oh, have gone yeah. nuts about getting Anthony Richardson on the field. Kind right? of similar too if they had Cam Newton as a backup to Russell Wilson. <laughs> I mean, I still agree. I agree with myself about Cam Newton. But like, it, it would have been... And there's, you know, there's obviously no guarantee that Anthony Richardson is good. Like, <laughs> I, I would put it at 50-50 whether he's a starting NFL quarterback in two, three years, right? And again, that's the history of quarterbacks, even drafted as high as he is, is that it's like, you know, a 50-50 chance whether you get someone who is a decent starter, there is a, still a one-third chance that that player is below replacement level in the NFL. So they kind of put off the issue. I think the Geno Smith conversation that you're talking about, though, and his contract is like the Seahawks put themselves in such a good position with this contract by signing a short-term deal where it's like, if Geno Smith is great and has another good two seasons or whatever, and they have to extend Geno, then well, you're no, like, well, no, no, the, the Geno extension would have to come next year. It's because still is he, like that roster well, bonus can't hit the cap. You know what I mean? Like, I don't know if there is a massive, massive Geno contract coming because every year that passes, Geno is a quarterback at that age. I like agree. if, if yeah. he has a monster year, maybe there's a very, very good extension, but because of the deal they signed for Geno this year, he would have to be like an MVP caliber quarterback to get that huge deal happen. And then, fuck it, then great, right? Like, if Geno is an MVP contender quarterback, then we're talking about the Seahawks going to the Super Bowl. So we would obviously take those problems. But I think that based upon the deal he signed this year, it sort of set the like it set the market for Geno Smith himself. Yeah, ben is nodding. So. Ben is nodding in agreement. <laughs> The other, the other, like the scary proposition about where they eventually it might have to cut money. Kind of like it's got some really big base salaries sitting out there in a few years here. And if Jackson Smith and Jigba is as good as we think, that that could be a, a place where they move on. But I don't even want to think about that because I'm still hyped about 
taking Jackie <laughs> to play with Tyler Lockett and DK Metcalf. So let's close on that that note of positivity. We'll enjoy this year first. <laughs> yes. And what what could be the best or the second best wide receiver trio in the NFL? Uh, can't freaking wait to watch these dudes play. And I'm excited to watch Devin Witherspoon play. I love a cornerback more than anything. And seeing Jackson Smith and Jigba, how open he's going to be on this team and how open he's going to make DK Metcalf, Tyler Lockett is awesome. I think Zach Charbonnet is going to have an awesome year plus depth at the positions. Like it's going to be, it's going to be a fun season. I'm ready. I am ready. It's sunny in Seattle all of a sudden. Like (laughs) let's bring on football, baby. All right. On that note, Ben, thanks so much for joining us. Thanks for having me. And, um, We'll do some over-unders and try to get 32 this time. (laughs) (laughs) we got four months to study for that. (laughs) Well, Tristan and I are back, and the Seattle Kraken. Kids are back because they've never been here before. In the second round of the playoffs, after a thrilling Game 7 victory in Denver over the Colorado Avalanche, 2-1. to It is our first ever hockey emergency pod. Wow. Hello. This uh, is a hockey podcast and a hockey town now. It's safe to say this has surpassed game five as the greatest win there in we Kraken go. playoff history. Honestly, almost every win from here on out is going to be. I mean, I don't know if they win just a random game in the second round. It's not as thrilling as a do or die game seven. When the Kraken lost at home in game six, it really felt like they had squandered their best opportunity in this series. Uh, obviously, anything can happen in an in individual hockey game, but you know, to I go think on what the you road were forgetting when you thought that, because I thought the same thing, was that home court does not matter. Home, home <laughs> ice, home ice does not matter in hockey. Is that right? Is that statistically true? Uh, it matters a little bit. It it has this not, is not like season. the NBA though, where Game Seven it's over if you're going into some some other place. I don't know the Game 7 history. Also, there was a literally a Game 7 road win earlier today, although obviously the experience was flipped. In that case, it was the defending champions who were on the road and got the win. In this case, it's the defending champions who have been or headed to Cancun. Do hockey Hello. players go to Cancun? I don't think I don't think they do. <laughs> I'm not sure what the hockey is. What is the sunniest part of Canada? <laughs> <laughs> Uh, it was very rainy in Toronto this weekend. We They're going to Prince Edward Island. Uh, uh, it, the Kraken pretty thoroughly outplayed in the first period, but managed to get in nil-nil. And then a pair of goals from Oliver, Oliver Bjorkstrand in the second period, one of which he got deflected off the Brandon, Brandon Tanev's stick and at least one Colorado defender. It took quite a circuitous route to the goal of the first the uh, to the net, the first goal in this game, and then he he adds a second. Kraken concede one. Seemed like Colorado had tied it early in the third period, uh, but they successfully challenged it for offsides, which was not really particularly close on the replay. But still, a great job by the uh, the video team to win a second a challenge in a second consecutive game, and the Kraken managed to hold on from there, even against one of this. You know, this high-powered offense with an extra skater after pulling the goalie late in the late stages of this one. Another terrific performance by Philip Grubauer against his former team. Absolutely. And I do think that the, you know, you say that the Avs kind of dominated the first period. But in the third period, when the Avs needed a goal with four minutes left, three minutes left, two minutes left, as things were getting closer... The Kraken were kind of getting the better chances. And that's one of those situations where obviously anything can happen. But it sort of looked like even with the desperation for the Avalanche that the Kraken were still kind of outplaying them. I mean, there were a couple of pucks that hit the crossbar along the way. And this could have easily been a 3-1 victory for the Kraken. Bjorkstrand had another one that was off of the the crossbar, had a chance to get to, or off the post, had a chance to get a hat trick in game seven. 
uh, which would have been a really incredible accomplishment. And yeah, the shot differential after one period was pretty massive in Colorado's favor. I I do not know off the top of my head where to get period by period stats uh, for <laughs> NHL games, but it ended up 34-27 Colorado. So the Kraken it evened that up pretty substantially, even in the third period, which is when usually you see the trailing team just have a massive advantage in shots. And an offense like the Avalanche. I mean, when they scored the the what looked like the tying goal, it kind of felt like it was a little bit of like it was only a matter of time. But as the period kept going, as the third period dragged on and the Kraken kept possessing the puck, it, it stopped feeling like that a little bit where you're not like this is inevitable that they're going to score here. And I think I kind of felt that at the very beginning. But throughout the period, things sort of flipped because of how they were playing. So I think this was just a straight up victory obviously took a circuitous path for one of those goals that they scored, but the Kraken kind of just went into Denver and won. Scored the first goal in all seven games in this series. It's only the second time in NHL history that that had happened. Obviously not NHL all history is seven a games. long time, right? It's true. It's not quite back to the last Seattle Stanley cup since that wasn't yet the NHL, but close. I don't know. If that is wild. Games. One time ever in in NHL playoff history. Yeah, there's been several times it happened in six game series, but not in seven game series. Ah, got it it, it okay. only happened the once. So, yeah, I mean, you know, I I don't know what else to say about this one. It was, you had fireworks in West Seattle. I heard fireworks, 100, ah! percent as if this were a Seahawks victory. The Seahawks. I can victory. tell you. That was not the case in Renton, Washington. <laughs> oh, wow. I don't mean to imply that culturally these are different places, but uh, West Seattle might have been a little bit more excited about, about the uh, Kraken victory there. Uh, there were no fireworks. There was here. one other thing I wanted to highlight. Part of what cost the Kraken in Game 6 was giving up a number of power plays. There was only one power play in this entire oh, game. I mentioned that to Mrs. Fantasy Genius, who really cared, really wanted my commentary <laughs> about hockey. This was like the, the. You needed that commentary to be about U11 baseball. There has to be a term more more extreme than the blind leading the blind for this one. <laughs> like that that is that is not not extreme enough for this conversation. But I was saying during the third period, like the chippiness that we saw earlier in the series was kind of gone. We, and... we never, there was a little chippiness. There was a bit of a, a thing between Tanev and Kale McCarr, I think at one point, but neither, neither player crossed the line. It was, it wasn't a penalty. And, and I just, you know, the clean play, like most penalties aren't the result of that necessarily. It's just, you get caught and trip a guy and, or hold a guy or something like that. And the Kraken played a completely clean game. I mean, one penalty. It was, I mean, that is very wild. But yeah, no, it felt like this being a game seven, everybody was playing very, very crisp hockey. Uh, and then again, like the the tensions that existed between the two teams kind of felt like they faded away a little bit as both teams were just focused on, you know, trying to win this game seven a little bit more than like, you know, the extra, extracurriculars that existed earlier in the series. Oh, at Cascadia Pirate. Uh, Undi Galaga on, on Twitter points out, boy, did we see the darkness beginning of the third period, though. We saw some darkness. I will say, I hate to admit to this. I understand I'm a bad person. I'm a bad sports fan. I do this with everything, even the things I love the most. In the back of my mind, there's always the little, it'd be kind of fun if they scored here. You know what I mean? I'm just saying, I straight up, I, I had to, you know what? I rationalized with myself. Here's what I did. I was thinking... There's like two minutes left, or, or right when uh, uh, Colorado pulled Gorgiev, right? And these are insane that they I know these names now. Uh, <laughs> I promise to forget them tomorrow. Luke asked me if I could name any Colorado Rockies, and I'm like, I named CJ Crone instantly, and then the list ended. I was like, we played them a couple weeks ago, and yeah. Can you name a, another Colorado Rocky? I don't know that I could have named that one. <laughs> could you? They had a, there's Chris Bryant, Jerks and Profire and stuff. Okay. Um, but. Anyway, when when they pulled Gorgiev, I, I was just like, I'm having such a good time sitting here watching hockey, right? <laughs> Wouldn't it be kind of fun to watch more? And you can't tell me that that never once crossed your mind. That never way, once crossed my mind. It's not, not hilarious one single time. how you and I are programmed so differently. <laughs> but Born in the same place. <laughs> the same, 
nearly the same time to the same people and yet so different. I will do this even with, like, if it's a tie. You know what I mean? Like, even if it's the Seahawks, I don't want to say in the Super Bowl or something, but, like, if the Seahawks are down a touchdown in an important game, part of me is just like, this would be even more fun if they scored, you know? Because it'll force me to see that darkness. But I rationalized this with myself, which was, if they don't score, I know that I'm going to be able to watch a lot more hockey. At least in, four at more least, games. Exactly. In a seven-game series. So I told myself, I thought for the long term, I waited, I got the two marshmallows. And <laughs> all of a sudden, now there's at least four more games of hockey and probably more. So we saw the darkness. I I mean, the goal, after seeing the replay, it was like, okay, this is done. Right. It wasn't, like, as dramatic as some penalty reviews because there's a lot riding on those in hockey where if you if you unsuccessfully challenge a call, you it's a penalty for you. The other team gets a power play out of it. Wait, really? That's the rule? That's the rule, yeah. How many minutes? Two minutes? Two minutes, yeah. It's mine. Wow, that's kind of an awesome rule. It is, isn't it? The NBA should maybe consider this. I, I don't, don't know, know how you would replicate play it. with four players. Like maybe a team, you get a team foul. I don't know. That's not extreme enough. A power Technical play foul? is like, what percentage of power plays and in goals? Uh, I do not know this off the top of my head, but it's a, I mean, it's a much higher number than not power plays, right? Correct. It is, seems like about 20% in the neighborhood of 20%. By the way, uh, in the first round, Edmonton scored on 56.25% of their power plays. <laughs> This is why we were glad the Kraken were in the Central Division bracket as the wild card and not in the Pacific Division facing Edmonton. Yeah, that seems good. That team is so good. We'll see, though. We will see. Well, yeah, I suppose it's, I suppose it's possible. So the Kraken advanced to face the Dallas Stars in a series that will start Tuesday in Dallas. Dallas finished one point behind Colorado in the Central standings had the best goal differential in the West at plus 67. The Stars were seventh in goals per game and allowed the third fewest goals per game. Strangely mediocre in Corsi and Fenwick, the NHL possession stats that are based on shots at at even strength. Uh, Stars beat Minnesota in six games in the opening round. It was their first series win since losing in the Stanley Cup final in 2020 under coach Rick Bonus. He stepped down after last season and was replaced by former Vegas coach Peter DeBoer. Dallas led in scoring by 23-year-old winger Jason Robertson, who ranked sixth in the league with 109 points. They had four other players with between 70 and 80, including Rupe Hintz, who had five goals and seven assists in the first round to lead them. Uh, forward Joe Pavelski missed the last five games of that series with a concussion, but was a game-time decision for Game 6 on Friday, so it seems possible that he could return against the Kraken. Still don't know about the future availability of Jared McCann, who did not play in the last three games of this series after taking that brutal hit from Kale McCarr. Okay, well, it sounds to me like the Stars are probably better than the Avalanche. I mean, it's not dramatically, but probably a little better, yeah. Would you... Look at it statistically. I understand the points that they scored or whatever. I mean, it's only a one point difference. And if they, you said they had the best goal differential in the West. Yes. This is going to be a formidable foe. It is. I mean, the thing that we talked about it at the start of the playoffs, like the thing that works in the Kraken's advantage is there's a lot of randomness in playoff hockey. And we saw it today with Boston after the best regular season win total in NHL history losing in seven games in overtime in the first round of the playoffs. That was to Toronto? Was that, that right? I mean, Toronto ended their like 17-year No, play- this was, this was to wind, Florida. Wind drought. Oh, okay. So. Oh, I was thinking about how Toronto, one of the original six teams, waited 17 years to win a playoff series. <laughs> Seattle, Washington, baby. We only had to wait one. <laughs> Yeah, that's that's pretty good. Not too shabby here. Not too shabby. That's uh, what you get for claiming to be the North. <laughs> Let me see if we have a series line on this yet. No, not no series line yet. Uh, but the Kraken are going to have a chance. And the one thing that's on in their favor is look. I don't know that that home road regular season performance really carries over to the playoffs necessarily. Even though it did in this series where the Kraken won. 
three times at Ball Arena, right? They won three. Yep. Three of their four wins came at Ball Arena. But they're not going to be phased by not having home ice in this series, certainly. So we will have a full recap of game one of the Seattle-Dallas series on this week's podcast and look forward to the rest of that one. On that note, thanks for listening. Thanks. It's funny talking as if I know anything about hockey. <laughs> you handled it well. It was it was a clear offsides after I looked up what offsides was, <laughs> understood the rule. It was evident. You didn't figure it haven't figured out offsides from playing Luca NHL in NHL? Like uh I no, I never really did. Actually, no, I guess I never figured it out there either. It wasn't until I started watching hockey regularly that I got it. I literally just Googled it and I was like, oh yeah, that makes sense. Like it took a second. Yeah. But it was pretty close to what I thought it was. I, yeah. I mean, I think I actually did. Then once I started playing the video game after I had watched hockey, I knew what I needed to do to not get offsides as much. <laughs> oh, I'm going to crush Luca. Now that I know. <laughs> I have so much power. <laughs> All right. Bye.